The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Right, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho and myself Steve Sedgwick and these are your headlines this Thursday morning. So Asian equity is hitting a seven-month high after the Nasdaq posts its first four-day rally since September, with investors eyeing today's U.S. inflation print. Talking of inflation, the Chinese consumer inflation accelerates as COVID curbs ease, but factory prices fall by more than expected amid ongoing disruptions in the global supply chain. Disney shares rise in after-hours trade as the House of Mouse announces Mark Parker as its next chairman. Setting the scene for a showdown after denying activist investor Nelson Peltz a seat on the board. TSMC shares are shrugging off the downturn in the semiconductor space as the world's largest chipmaker sees fourth quarter profit of almost $10 billion. That's a near 80% increase. The World Economic Forum warns the cost of living and climate crises are the most pressing risks facing the global economy ahead of next week's Davos annual meeting. Managing Director Sadia Zahidi tells CNBC policymakers must fully grasp the gravity of the situation. We are in the midst of a polycrisis world and that we face the risk of multiple and enduring interconnected polycrisis. I think leaders have to fully understand and integrate that into their thinking. Right, everybody, it's, it's like we've opened the advent calendar and here we are, we're on Christmas Eve, just before the CPI data later on this afternoon. And, and look, it, it's going to frame everything for the next few days, all right? So I'll just whiz through the markets because we're going to have a good old chat about this in a few moments' time. But safe to say there is a very uncomfortable place out there at the moment. And that uncomfortable place is occupied by some very, very smart people who have said some very logical things and who have written some very logical things and who have analysed the situation and in many ways are right. They are right that there are concerns about the market not factoring in a recession. They are right that the market hasn't factored in an earnings recession and continues to rally with big, big multi-day rallies for the first time, as I mentioned in the headlines, since September. The problem is the market doesn't always obey the rules of logic, i.e. so many market participants are looking ahead. We're looking beyond uh, the recession, looking beyond the earnings recession and ignoring where it would be historically. Now, I know that those people who I have a lot of empathy for, a lot of understanding and agree with them in many ways are saying this is a fool's rally. But what if, what if the events of the earnings season the events that we're seeing on inflation at the moment, the events that we're seeing created by speakers and the Federal Reserve. What if all of that actually happens and the market continues to rally? And that's what a lot of people are betting on at the moment. Now, I don't necessarily know whether this is a tactical rally, i.e. people putting on positions just for the moment and getting them off again quickly, or it's a strategic longer term rally. But safe to say, and we can move on to the Treasuries as well at the moment. Have a look at this. Uh, 4.22 on the uh, two-year, 10-year trading at 3.53 as well. So the Treasury yields are abating somewhat on the hope from many that the data today will be, 
week. And, and we said in the headlines, well, I think Karen and Jeff were talking about them in the headlines as well. CPI headline was 7.1, seen at 6.5. The core was 6%, seen at 5.6. Anything lower than 6.5 and 5.6 respectively for those two numbers. And it could be very, very interesting to see what happens next in terms of market action. Dollar crosses. Let's have a look. So the pound and the euro still remain near their recent highs. The yen actually making ground yet again and the dollar falling back a little bit. Dollar yuan 6.755 as well. We'll move on to commodities as well. Very strong day yesterday uh, for the likes of WTI and Brent, which both rose over 3%. Brent now trading at 82.79. Again, a lot of the Chinese reopening hopes are therein as well. And the opening calls for European markets look like this. Oh, big part. I, I jumped, didn't I? Asian markets. There you go. Flat as a pancake across the board, apart from the ASX 200 at one point. That was my fault, Will, not yours. Opening calls look like this. There we go. We are called high at the start of trade. And FTSE near an all-time high. But as we were saying, that, that, that doesn't mean to say that companies haven't earned uh, a lot more money and, and actually had cheaper valuations in the meantime. So actually, perhaps that's cheaper than last time we were at 77.48. So let me just read through this quickly before we go into a bit more detail. Uh, US inflation data. Here we go. Let's go to it straight away is expected to ease in December, with CPI forecast lower by 0.1% versus the month before. The annual rate is projected at 6.5%, a further moderation from that June peak amid declining energy prices. Although I do know that gasoline prices domestically in the States seem to have stabilised and just picked up off their recent lows. Mr Cutmore. Yes, let's talk a little bit about the Fed's continued response here as well, Steve, because the Fed currently forecasts rates will peak at 5.1% this year. That's versus the current range of 425 to 4.5%. Boston Fed President Susan Collins says she supports a 25 basis point hike at the central bank's meeting next month. Collins said either 25 or 50 would be reasonable, but that she is leaning toward a quarter point move. Collins is not a voting FOMC member this year. So we're, we're, we're looking at um, an inflation print clearly that the market is optimistic will show continued decline. And I think there's good reason for the market to believe that we are headed in a direction where the CPI prints will be on a downward slope. Remember, all the way back to June, we had that 9.1% print. Then by the time we got to November, it had fallen to 7.1%. And something that I think adds to the optimism at the moment is the idea that China is reopening and ultimately the supply chains that were broken through zero COVID are going to be reconnected in a way that ultimately removes some of those frictional cost increases for businesses. Looking at the, the way the market and the macro are working together at the moment, I, I think this is fascinating. We, we've clearly got a leadership change in the markets. When you look at those shares that are doing well at the moment, um, there was a great piece of biryani uh, research out um, talking about how all of last year's laggards have effectively become this year's leaders, which is making it incredibly hard for the um, hedge fund community, the um, institutional investors to actually get the right asset class within sectors, uh, within stocks, within growth, vis value. The other thing is the macro has changed. So clearly there is a difference in the setup that we have when we contemplate what is going to have leadership going forward. And the third thing I would just say is there are a lot of people out there who are making the case that this is an historic shift 
that we are witnessing here and that everybody needs to understand that future returns are going to be a lot lower than historic returns possibly for a decade here. But I don't think the market believes it and the market doesn't want to accept it. And even, even as we are getting these rotations in, in, in the, the structure of what is winning at the moment and how the macro setup is working, the underlying still seems to me there are a lot of investors out there who think that they're going to do really well 10% plus this year. You've said that up nicely. I think what we're hearing so far this year, very different opinions across the board. Some fund managers who are still very bearish, thinking we're looking at one of the most difficult economic environments in a long time, and therefore markets are going to find it extremely challenging to wade through 2023. That's matched against the optimism that's returned this year. If we even get a consensus number on CPI today, this rally that we're witnessing could continue, which would be a very stunning turn of events to be uh, still rallying at this point uh, across on markets. If we get a miss, I mean, stand back and uh, the bears are going to be celebrating here if we get a number that still insinuates still gives us a, gl- a glimpse that uh, we've got a problem with inflation then some of these risk on trades are just going to evaporate very very quickly and you know to your point around the laggards even the meme stocks were moving yesterday investors were touching these stocks that we heard just yesterday around the set don't touch these story stocks they are done they're not coming back anytime soon but yet what we had a 60 plus percent move in the likes of bbb yesterday so i I think it is challenging the narrative a little bit that if we have a risk on move, then FOMO starts to return to markets. And we've just lived through FOMO in this post-COVID phase that we've got, again, another monster rally taking place. But um, when we were ever looking at a story like this in history, when it really did come down to one data point, how many times over the course of show after show, year after year, did we have that conversation that it's not just down to one data point? It really is about a, a trend, a series of a different uh, data releases to give us a, an idea of where the economies are going. That's not where we are at the moment. We are down to one data point today, and that is CPI. Yeah, I, I, I mean, all of the other, as you probably heard, I was saying at the wall, it, uh, there's a lot of very smart people there who just do not believe this rally whatsoever, and they're using sound historical examples. But the problem is, events are overtaking them. If the Fed does signal it's going for 25 and maybe another 25 and then they're done, if the CPI data, both core, is better than expected and then it gives them the balls more reason to push on, if some of the data in the earnings season proves better than expected and actually a recession is shallow or skirted, very, very difficult for those people who have very sound looking at the historicals to pivot on their rationale, having told their clients that they've missed a, a 5, 10, 15% rally in some cases. So uh, I, it's an awkward position to be in, being logical on the bear side. Just back to the point that you were making about the former glory, I think. that The technology sector, we know, has been a great narrative play for a long time. And even now, a terrific piece of research dropped into my inbox yesterday. The most searched stocks in every European country in 2023 so far. What do you reckon? Tesla. Tesla. Tesla's number one. Yeah. So Tesla, the most Google stock searched for in Europe, top searched in 28 countries. AMC comes in second um, as the most popular stock searched for five countries. Neo. Uh, comes in as um, one that is very uh, highly searched as well. This was a um, um, a a terrific piece of research, as I say, that came out of the Google uh, Trends data. But what does that tell you? It tells you there are a lot of people who are still in love with their ex who want to see if they can rekindle the relationship at this point. What do you reckon? Is it a good idea to go back to your ex? 
you when the to, conditions change. Well, some do go back to their ex and it uh, works out for them. Others uh, st always stay away and it was a good decision. But if you think about the short <laughs> interest, it's a bit of both, really. You've AMC. taken me down a psychological path. It took me years of therapy <laughs> to Steve's get got through. A <laughs> I think some of the viewers are probably thinking no, about this no, too. No, that won't be happening. <laughs> well, this is like market positioning. There's the grey area and there's the black or white. No, there, think, there, there's know? no grey area in that one. <laughs> Yeah, to be fair, I think it's stunningly yeah, mutual. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, normally we all know you consult the lawyers at the beginning of the new year yes, after thinking do. about the split over Christmas and then you begin your new life as a separate uh, entity. Uh, in this case, it seems to me that a lot of people are not ready for the lawyers yet. They're still trying to make it work and they're still hoping that companies like Tesla and these other tech businesses and well, AMC, yeah. for goodness sake, they have a significant well, rebound. Well, a lot of them never left their ex. They were just in an abusive relationship, which is just beating them up financially. I think this is the problem with a cocktail and a bit of flirtation. You start to uh, just revisit some of that former glory and you know, AMC yeah, yeah, stock is uh, one that investors have been in and out of on the trade. The he's taken us down. It's always your fault. Do you see the uh, Chinese... sounds a whole lot better than talking about the CPI 0.1% move that we're likely to get today. Yeah, but anyway, it does matter. Um, there's just been some Chinese data. I know Karen's got the inflation stuff. but So Chinese uh, vehicle sales down 8.4% year on year in December versus 7.9% in November. So no sign of a rebound there. Uh, January to December vehicle sales up 2.1% versus 3.8% a year ago. But the Chinese inflation data is out, Karen. Yeah, let's just run through some of the numbers as we set up for that to US print later on today. Chinese CPI accelerated by 1.8% in December, in line with analyst expectations. However, producer prices fell by 0.7%, a much sharper decline than expected. Can you two stop talking about your exes, please? As manufacturers continue to grapple with weak demand and supply chain disruptions. Nailed us. <laughs> <laughs> China. Yes, so we are talking about what's playing on China. You mentioned a moment ago that perhaps there's some upside with this reopening theme, oh, and that's something that clearly we've seen in other places yeah. before. Supply chains <coughs> get fixed. Um, the other side, though, is that you get some of that pent-up demand story that can impact consumers, but can also impact the commodity side. So do we get any um, negative drawdown on the inflation numbers because of the China reopening? Or if anything, does it it's push or yes. remain a neutral position? No, I can go the other way. I was going to take him on. I was going to cross sabres with him because <clears throat> the Chinese reopening story, yeah, reduces bottlenecks and supply chain issues, yeah? That was your logic, yeah? Uh, That's what you said. Yeah, I think, okay. I think there is a reconnection of some of these supply chains going on. I think there's a lot of Western business people in the manufacturing space who went, that's it, we're done with China, oh, we're, yeah, yeah. we're reshoring, we're localising, or we're going to... Vietnam or it, Thailand exactly. or what have you. And now they're kind of going, mm, there's actually quite but, hard to do that. But it costs money. If the China growth story is still the X factor for the global market, which it has been for most of this century... Um, does that recreate inflation if, the if the <clears throat> we're still quite short on some commodities? I notice copper's trading higher, um, you know, multi-month highs once again, oil's back on the front foot again. If the China reopening story can create anything, surely it can create more inflation rather than less inflation. Or actually, the logic is, of course, it can create both at the same time, depending on where you are on the curve. Yeah, I mean, the question is, how do the Chinese uh, authorities themselves 
seek to stabilise the economy from here on in. Well, they've shown, haven't they, by making it easier to borrow money because they're worried about the property sector, which uh, flies in the face. And, and, and that's to my point, that um, they haven't learnt the new trick. I mean, there was this great desire to generate domestic consumption to match the American structure of their economy, whereas, what, what is it, 70 75% of demand in, in the United States is domestically driven. It's nothing like that in China. And you talked the other day about the middle income trap, and that is a serious threat now for the Chinese economy. And the only way you really break that, it seems to me, is you go up the value chain. Now, can China do that when the United States and, more latterly, the EU is beginning to coalesce around the idea of restricting technology transfer? Can China itself generate sufficient progress in intellectual property to move itself up the value curve? I think that question is unanswered at this point. And as you say, they're falling back on what they've always done, which is stack it high, sell it cheap, encourage the world to go back to China as the factory floor. And that is disinflationary, I think. Which may sort of cover over a paper over some of the cracks before that medium-term, long-term technology story kicks in. But we've been watching a lot of coverage from Emily about the border opening with Hong Kong. And I've got to say, the animal spirits are very strong. There's enormous excitement about the reopening theme in China, and that can carry an economy a long way. If you think about some of the trades that have really gone on, resource stocks, some of the major ones, BHP, Rio, very strong balance in these stocks well, already the in the commodity space. A lot of people who are under-vaccinated and have used the wrong vaccines or vaccines that aren't actually sufficiently useful make a lot of people very sick. We're going to move on. I um, hope you've enjoyed the conversation so far. Your thoughts are always welcome. I think they enjoyed welcome. the bit about exes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Uh, let, let's get back to the business. The Bank of Japan is reportedly set to review the side effects of its ultra-loose monetary policy and could take additional steps to address distortions in the bond market, according to a local media report. This after the central bank widened its yield ban target on the 10-year to 0.5%. Uh, well, the Asian markets are broadly higher at this point. Modest gains for... Uh, Tokyo, though, and Hong Kong and Shanghai only up just over a tenth of 1% at this stage. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to refocus on that Disney head headline for you. Uh, Disney slamming the door shut on activist investor Nelson Peltz's attempt to join its board. More on that story when we come back. And for more on expectations for the US CPI print, as well as the latest market action, revisiting our relationships with exes, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give to someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Harris Associates, one of Credit Suisse's largest shareholders, has seen its stake in the embattled Swiss lender shrink by around half, according to regulatory filings. Harris disclosed a stake of around 10% in Credit Suisse last August. 
and backed the bank's restructuring plans announced late last year. According to Bloomberg, Harris's uh, chief investment officer said its stake was diluted when new capital was added and the fund had to raise liquidity for withdrawals and year-end distributions. Um, right, so this is buying at the top, selling at the bottom, yeah? Just so that we know what Harris has done here. Or, well, they haven't sold, have they? They've said they've been diluted out. Yeah, well, so they didn't take part. But in the as you say, yeah, they didn't take part. This is a company that is, I, I, look, I don't know a lot about Harris, I don't yeah. know a lot about Mr. Hero, but let's just call it how it is. This is an investment which has been an absolute disaster for them as well. Whatever great stuff they've done elsewhere, and I'm sure they've done some brilliant things, but they bought this stake, for my mind, and I'll go back to the, the somewhere in the region of 28 to 30 odd uh, Swissy per share. Can we get the Credit Suisse shares up just one more time? That's Goldman's uh, Credit Suisse, um, three Swissy. So they've had a, an enormous loss on this one, despite advocating all kinds of change, all kinds of activity at the company over years. It's been a disastrous holding for Harris. I think there's been an enormous pressure on Credit Suisse already today. We covered it right through last year. Every twist and turn, uh, more reporting on negative um, investments that they've had, reorganisation of the business. But I think when you've got the activists also up in arms because they're losing money here, it piles even more pressure on the company again. As we think about this year, you've got the likes of uh, Goldman's looking at layoffs, others in the sector. And there was a report from uh, Rival Channel that Credit Suisse is also weighing a 50% cut to the bonus pool. So I think uh, as we look at the rewards internally at the business, for those that have stuck around and are, are battling uh, negative news flow day in, day out pretty much over last year, there's not going to be much on the other side of it because of where the activists are also yeah, I feeling. Be, got, I mean, I'll do the read. And then we'll go back to it, because I think it's worth chatting about. Can we do that now? I know we've got Disney chatting. Uh, Goldman Sachs began laying off staff globally as part of its drive to reduce costs. Overall, the bank has announced it will cut around 6.5% of its global workforce. We have close to a third of those affected coming from investment banking and global markets divisions, according to a source speaking with Reuters. Goldman's earnings due tomorrow, with profits expected to fall 45% uh, on the year. My, my point here is Goldman's is a very different beast from Credit Suisse. Absolutely. Credit Suisse is looking existentially about what operations it still has. Goldman's is just saying, right, that area is really quiet. We don't need the staff there until M&A picks up. But my goodness me, you just know that JP, Citi, Goldman's, all these big US investment banks, as soon as that activity turns back to their sector, they will be hiring aggressively and hiring at top dollar as well. We saw the, the race for talent uh, as post-COVID as well and how the starting fees at these banks just went crashed through six-figure levels to the upside as well. Plus, we saw in a previous cycle, and you'll both recall this, back in the middle of the last decade, how they were fighting against the tech companies uh, for talent as well. And we had this ridiculous statement from a lot of the people who came on this set saying, oh yeah, today's young talent don't want the money. They want access to new technology and all the growth industries and all the ESG. Poppycock. People want money and they want high remuneration. They want the high prospect of remuneration as well. So a lot of that's come and gone. So I'd imagine as and when things turn around, certainly the US investment banks will be absolutely hiring aggressively again. Can I just take us back to Credit Suisse? Because I think um, the, the, for me, you know, this was a story that I spent a lot of time shuttling backwards and forwards to Zurich uh, yeah. over last year. And uh, <laughs> I wish. It doesn't really matter in the European context, does it? I mean, all it means is you, you don't have that curtain in front of you. But um, <laughs> look, they were in the emergency ward last year and there was some major surgery going on. And um, the question is, when does the share price begin to respond to the uh, restructuring that um, uh, Ulrich Kerner has put in place alongside the chairman to try and turn this into something that looks a bit more like a thoroughbred 
rather than a, 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 a sort of milk delivery cart horse. And the surgery has been quite dramatic and the new investors have come in with liquidity but with expectations that actually they're going to deliver ultimately. And I don't know if we can pop up that chart and just have a look at it, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to compare the nascent rebound that we've seen in the Europe 600 banks sector with what is happening with Credit Suisse, because you might be thinking that at some point we would get a market reaction that would show that there is belief in the strategy. But at the moment, the jaws on this crocodile are just opening wider, it seems, at this stage. And we are in the convalescence ward, and hopefully the, the, the new team have nailed it here. But they are banking on, as we've pointed out on many occasions, they are banking on the strength of a sector that everybody else wants to go after, the high net worth, the wealthy individual who is still going to be engaged in the markets. And increasingly, as we talked about at the top of the program, as the structure of these markets and the macro is shifting, a lot of these high net worths are pulling in their horns and they are taking more defensive positions and they are listening to their investment bank advisors or their wealth management advisors who are telling them, this may not look pretty going forward this year. Once the earnings recession kicks in, you don't want to be anywhere near risk assets. So that's a tough place to be at a time when we know that the cycle is not favouring their particular client. I'll try and say something favourable. I mean, Credit Suisse has run a little bit harder than Goldman's this year. That's thanks to the risk on rally that's been here in Europe versus the United States. So you've had a 10% move on Credit Suisse here to date, and you've had a 5% move on Goldman's. That said, over the course of last year, uh, Goldman's was only down 6%, so much more resilient versus the 60-plus percent slump that we saw on Credit Suisse stock. So, you know, last year still matters if you're looking at portfolios. I think this year jurisdiction might matter to an extent but um, that said we are on the cusp of uh, the report cards that will be crossing from Goldman's and the rest of the banks uh, in a matter of days so I think that's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know if it's about thorough but I think it's more like you, you've, got, you've got two classic cars one is proven and purring and is factory pristine kind of thing even though it's 40 years old and it's in beautiful nick and then you've got another old banger that you found uh, in an old yard somewhere on a farm which actually if you spend enough money on it may well get back to the level of the other one at some stage as well which one are you going to go for you're going to go for the one that's purring away and looking fantastic or the one that's going to require a vast amount of investment to get it anywhere near as good as the one that's already there don't know the answer. Well, Jeff's going to do the tinkering, isn't he? He's going to buy a whole new motor well, for it, a whole new engine. Takes a well, long well, time and a lot of <clears> sourcing <throat> of parts to find, to get back to that, I don't know, GTO level or whatever it is. The, the point is that you want to let the last owner have paid all the big money before you buy the vehicle ah. because you rarely buy the car at the true <clears throat> the true cost of what's gone into the car and you hope that the previous owner is the one that's done all the major outlay and then but you pick up the car at market price having all the major work already done is for this you. Is this a lesson with Harris Associates? Uh, well, I don't know about for Harris Associates, but it's a good lesson in the classic car world because quite often people think they're going to get a bargain barn find but then when they spend all the money getting it back on the road, it works out they could have bought the the one that had had the work done already for a whole lot cheaper. And there is a message in there, I think, about how we look at the banking stocks. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.